Welcome to our final episode of the year for Blue Topsy. It's been a long year, hasn't it? It's been a fun year. It's it been has. a fun year, a long year, a productive year, and I am looking forward to 2019. A lot of things to cover. How's your family, man? Uh, good. We had um, Hanukkah and Christmas and a little bit of interesting drama on Christmas Day because of one of the kids. And, never uh, never a dull moment. You have three sons. I have three sons. So teen, we can, teen, we can yeah, keep yeah. that going, right? Teenage behavior. Well, I, I want to shout out to Jean Corley. Um, best grandmother a person can have. She passed away over the holiday. Uh, my wife's grandmother not only was someone that was instrumental in my life, but she worked at the Naval Shipyards in Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, had an amazing homegoing service. So our Christmas was bittersweet. It was mm-hmm. fun. We got to see a lot of family. Our kids, as usual, broke the bank by getting nothing but electronics instead <laughs> of uh, asking for toys like we used to get when we were growing up. Yes. But uh, but I enjoyed it, and we have a phenomenal guest that we're going to introduce in a second, someone very familiar to our show who we love and admire in so many ways, and, and we're going to cover an array of topics, but uh, we're going to start off by by, you know, really paying our respects to the over 400,000 men and women that are being uh, affected and impacted by this government shutdown because uh, our, uh, you know, gentleman that is sitting in the <laughs> Oval Office is is uh, trying to get $5 billion for a wall he's trying to put up. You want to know something? If you pay taxes and you want to get a refund, that's going to delay your refund because everything's going to be backed up. Everything. And just to kind of run through it so everybody knows and Got my cheat sheet, but the Department of Treasury, Department of Agriculture, Homeland Security, uh, Department of the Interior, Department of State, Department of Housing and Urban Development. Our our uh, former governor, Sonny Perdue, just made an announcement that he's cutting food stamps. Yes, and that's a whole nother conversation um, for those faithful men and women that serve on our Coast Guard. Uh, they had to secure Mar-a-Lago this weekend and, and tonight for uh, the new year, and they have to do it without being paid. Our faithful secret service mm-hmm. is doing it without pay. Our Department of Transportation. Department of Commerce and Department of Justice. And just to put this into perspective before we go into our show, um, I want people to understand, you know, my 17 year old brother, my I said 17, my 21 year old brother, he's 21 today. Uh, he and I had a conversation mm-hmm. and he uh, was saying, hey, it's my first time to be able to do my tax returns. And I said, well, hold on there, because that's going to potentially be held up. And his first Mm -hmm. words to me was, I didn't realize that that could be impacted as well. So to put this into perspective, and we'll jump right into our show, um, Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid all being impacted. The U.S. Postal Service, uh, we all know how important it is to get our mail. And for those who have to deliver our mail, we wish them well as they travel around, but they should be getting paid. Uh, Food stamps, as we mentioned with uh, Sonny Perdue and what he's doing around agriculture. We're going to talk about tariffs in our farmers today right. as well and also how some industries are being impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, the military, my father was a United States Army Ranger. My father-in-law retired from the Pentagon. And I can't imagine these brave men and women that are putting their lives on the line every day. They're being impacted. The Mueller investigation, uh, that's being impacted because mm-hmm. that's what the Department of Justice Border Patrol, we have seen uh, an array of issues from two very unfortunate deaths of young children that crossed the border and died by very preventable um, illnesses. And, and, and we're very sad to hear that. But, you know, we, we all would agree, Eric, that we need to secure our borders. But there's a more humane and compassionate way to do it. And there's a way to spend that five billion to secure our borders without building a wall that's not going to do anything for the problem. Do you want to know something? Talk to me, man. Uh John Kelly gave an exit interview to the Los Angeles Times. And 
He said what everybody's known. You know that the wall is just like a political tool. It is. Because our current president is a, a little challenged in many ways. And it was a little nugget that he got to dangle out there, red meat, to his adoring fans when he went out to these these rallies. There was never going to be a wall. And we know that security in the wall is a virtual wall using drones and technology right. and stuff. Th- that's reality. And, and the thing is, our guests who will introduce very shortly um, can tell us more than anything, you know, being a business owner, uh, governing and campaigning are two totally different things. Okay. And uh, I think that Mr. Trump is learning that very much. Um, I'll be in L.A. this weekend. So air traffic control in the TSA. Uh, if you want to know how it's impacting Georgia, our uh Friends at the TSA are being impacted. Those who are charged with screening mm-hmm. folks before they get on the plane, which is pretty scary seeing that I'm going to be on a five hour flight, but I'm trusting mm-hmm. they're going to do their job. Uh, what really brings it home uh, for me is the fact that the King Center is not right. open. Uh, the King Center and the grounds, uh, mm-hmm. which is such a such a staple to Atlanta. This is the very uh, the busiest travel time of the year. And hundreds of thousands of people travel from all over the world, from Italy and from Asia and from India mm-hmm. to just come to Atlanta to pay respects mm-hmm. to Dr. and Coretta Scott King. Um, and, and it's just really uh, impactful. So again, the federal judiciary, Washington, D.C., the museums, the Smithsonian. I mean, I can go on and on and on. But today we want to talk about some of the good things that are happening. We want to really break down uh, the post-election analysis and really dive in headfirst with our good friend, Sarah Amico. Sarah, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm great. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you. And we, <laughs> you got to understand something, guys. You can't see us uh, in this studio having this conversation right now, but Eric and I's faces lit up when we found out we'd be able to chat and close out the year with Sarah. And it's probably pro- the, one of the most uh, heartwarming things to have seen you run for office, mm-hmm. to have been able to support you. And we're so happy to hear about what you're doing now, about you know what your plans are, and about some of the headlines that we're seeing right now. So, Eric, why don't you open us up and, and let's talk to our friend and reintroduce the world to a lady that really did some amazing things running for lieutenant governor right here in the state of Georgia. Okay, so I have one question to start with. Just one? Just one. Just, <laughs> there's going to be plenty, you know that. So I call it the tale of the first-time candidate. Uh-huh. Okay. Like, what were some of the biggest surprises Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me back. Um, I can't tell you how excited I was to come back and have this conversation. Um, As a first-time candidate, it really is drinking from a fire hose. I mean, (laughs) you're you're taking in so much. um, And no matter how hard you try, you know, you you can't quite get everything at once. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, I think the most rewarding part of it was traveling the state. So, you know, yesterday, or I'm sorry, Saturday, we took my in-laws, my husband's originally from Italy. So his parents, his sister and her husband and their three kids are all visiting for the holidays. Wow. And How many people are in your house? <laughs> right now we have... Um, a lot. Um, the fact that see. she had to stop and think <laughs> about it. We, I think we're at 13, 13. right now, <laughs> but it's just for a couple of weeks. So mm-hmm. it's cozy and um, there's a lot of really good Italian food. Oh, man. Uh, no. <laughs> well, we're going to make sure you get on a nice workout plan after. Yeah, there you I go. grew I'm up in Italy and you're going to have to do some walking and some cardio. Exactly. I'm going to I'm going to burn those carbs. We've had uh, no pasta left behind for sure. <laughs> but it was fun because when we sat down to say where do we want to take everybody? What do we want to show them in the 2 weeks they have to spend in Georgia? 
we were sort of at a loss to find out how to fit it all in, wow. right? Because wow. in the last year, we've been in every corner of the state. We have identified our favorite coffee restaurant, you know, Zio Carlo down on the coast. We've identified um, this amazing tea shop owned by a Taiwanese immigrant named Yvonne called Mayomi Bookstore in Chambly, which is right next to Oriental Pearl Dim Sum. Wow. And so yesterday we took my Sounds in-laws. Like she has a skill set of being a travel advisor as well. Oh my gosh! Oh, credit. I, I just love the state, and I love these little local businesses. So we literally yesterday we took my in-laws to dim sum, and then we took them to Yvonne's shop, Mayomi hmm. Bookstore in Chamblee. And Yvonne came out and taught my three nephews from Italy and our two daughters how to do calligraphy. And she gifted them, literally gifted, these beautiful practice mats for calligraphy and a calligraphy pen so that they could practice Chinese wow. calligraphy. And you just use warm water and it shows up on the mat and then it dries up and you can start all over again. <clears throat> and she took, you know, half an hour out of her day as the shop owner to sit with the kids who are as young as five and as old as 18 and walk them through how to sit properly wow. at the table for calligraphy and how to hold the pen vertically and how to keep your arm off the table while you do it. And and then she served my in-laws and my my father-in-law is a you know, 76-year-old wow. retired Italian general, Air Force fighter jet pilot. Um, my mother-in-law is a retired... I need to go over and hang out with him. Oh, man, he has some stories. Uh-huh. So, you know, he worked um, <laughs> in Belgium uh, as part of the team that assessed Soviet armaments wow. during the Cold War. Wow. And so um, he has amazing stories. The first time my husband, when he was younger, and his parents and his sister tried to go from, I think it was Finland, into Russia, they were denied at the border because of his dad. Um, So they have, you know, they have all these crazy stories. But Yvonne, the owner, took time and made tea for them. Like the most beautiful tea service sat down and served my in-laws like a traditional tea. And to watch that and to say, you know, not only have the experience, but understand that we were also there experiencing a woman who came here and is living her version of the American dream, Mm -hmm. who, um, you know, told us when I met her in the summer on the campaign, she told me how she moved initially to Ringgold, Georgia, and how there was nobody who looked like her. And she told this funny story about how the first time she went to the post office, you know, the person in front of her in line kind of turned around and looked at her a little funny because she was so close (laughs) behind. Because in Taiwan, you know, it's just not the same concept of personal space. space. And she said, you know, it was really culture shock. And she told us how the people of Ringgold, Georgia, were so welcoming. For those folks that are listening, tell them where Ringgold is. Oh, so up in the northwest corner. And in fact, that's um, David Dreyer and Stacey Evans' hometown, I believe. So we've got some... Yeah, we got some really good folks from Ringgold. And what I loved was she, she, you know, she arrives in this country and she's learning the language, the culture, the norms. And it's this little small town in Georgia. And the way she tells it is... These were some of her best friends even today. So 20-something years later, she's still in contact. But these people took her in. They made her feel welcome, even though nobody looked or talked like her. And now she owns her own shop. Her son went to NYU for college. He's working in New York. He dreams of going to Columbia Business School, which is where my husband did his MBA. So we got to tell this whole story 
to my in-laws and show them this beautiful shop she has. Um, On Saturday, we took them to uh, Dahlonega to the Consolidated Gold Mine. If y'all have kids, by the way, and you're listening to this, (laughs) take your kids to Dahlonega and go tour the gold mine. It is a hoot. It's a great locally owned business. Um, It is an incredible part of Georgia's history. It It is is. the largest hard mine. um, Dahlonega is a fun place. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's the largest mine of its kind east of the Mississippi. And you can actually go down and tour it. Yep. And then they have little pans of, of sand <laughs> that right. you can pan, you know, quote unquote, yep. for gold. We've with taken the kids. our boys there, yeah. It's great for kids, right? I mean, one thing that I love about even how you're setting this all up is, is <laughs> you know, when you, you know, Eric and I have the luxury of living at the, you know, foothill of North right. Georgia, which is Forsyth County. I mean, we like to think we're the gateway to North Georgia, but everything from Amicalola Falls oh, yeah. to... We hiked that when we went up to talk to the Dawson exactly, County Dams. I took exactly. my girls with me and we climbed Amicalola. <laughs> and, it's, and it's fun because there's so much this state has to offer. Um, and, and I want to kind of get into, you know, kind of segue into your experience from the election. Yeah, um, absolutely. This is a big state, 159 counties. Uh, living in Forsyth County, my family and I, we tend to take these day trips, whether it's Amicalola yeah. or Blue Ridge or Helen, Georgia. J. I mean, we go down to the Savannah coastline and, you know, so many parts of our state that are amazing. But by the numbers, you know, the thing that I wanted to really touch base on is, you know, we all were shaken up in 2002 when the Republicans took the state and seeing uh, we did make some strides. Uh, Lucy McBath and some other great Democrats around our state uh, had uh, the ability to shift the Congress. And we've done, we were a part of that contribution. Um, Stacey Abrams got 48.8 percent. She ran a very formidable campaign. She did a lot to bring the state together and to activate some non-voters in your particular race. Uh, you got 48.3 percent of the vote. And we were very impressed by that because, number one, we not only thought highly of you as a candidate, but we felt like that was a race that we kept our eye on because we know going down the ballot is critical and important. So thank you for the work you've done there. What my first question is, is looking at how Lindy Miller and uh, Secretary of State John John Barrow, Barrow, uh, they went to a runoff, you know. What does that mean for Democrats in this state where we might not have gotten a result where obviously we were hoping that you would be our lieutenant governor? We were hoping that, you know, um, Don Randolph and Lindy Miller would have won uh, and and turned around the Public Service Commission with all the things that are going on there. Uh, From your opinion, political and business, Mm -hmm. what did this election mean to Democrats in the state of Georgia? Yeah. So first of all, for Democrats, this is not a loss. I mean, I'm sorry we didn't get the outcome we all wanted. But make no mistake about it, this was a huge win for us this year. Yeah, We turned out hundreds of thousands of voters who've never cast a ballot before. We brought out voters who sat on the sidelines because they didn't feel they had something to vote for and they weren't willing to get to a ballot box to vote against someone. And that's a win. That is. Um, we were blessed to have some of the most generous, gracious energized, capable, kind, thoughtful volunteers in any campaign I have ever seen. And and y'all know I've been around this for more than 20 years as more somebody who studied politics, mm-hmm. but <clears throat> you know, also as somebody who kept a really close eye on campaigns. That's right. And I've never seen 
the kind of motivation and selflessness that we saw in the volunteers the Democratic candidates had this year. So even though we didn't get the outcomes that we wanted in every case, there were bright spots to celebrate. I think Lucy McBath has an incredible story and a very kind, thoughtful, empathy-driven heart which will serve us well in Congress. Um, there are 13 new state house seats that were picked up by Democrats. Um, the Democratic Party put a slate of candidates forward that looked like the state that had diverse experience. You had nurses like, um, you know, Miss Barlow down in Southwest Georgia, Joyce Barlow, That's who right. ran for the state house. You had educators, you had social workers like Shelly Denae Hutchinson, who won a seat up in Gwinnett. So I think we all need to take a beat and say we're disappointed, but this was not a loss. And this, the thing, the this thing, is a good thing for our party. The thing about it, you know, Fred Swan ran for Agricultural Commission, got uh, 46 and a half percent. John Barrow got for over 48 uh, percent. You look at uh, Charlie Bailey, who I, I just thought the world of Charlie mm-hmm. Bailey. He ran a great campaign. Uh, we hoped that some of his ideas uh, to serve as attorney general would have been good. But one of the things I'm most impressive, and then I want Eric, I want you to chime in and help us to guide this conversation. But your knowledge and your, you know, deep, you know, understanding and appreciation of other candidates around the state is something that I think is very fascinating because it's the best part of the campaign. It, right? it is. I mean, to be able to go out there and in solidarity with people who share your values. That's right. Go out and tell voters we're here to do the work. We don't care who you voted for in the past. We don't care what you look like or who you love or how you pray or how much money you've got or how you got here. That's right. We want to represent you and and, and we'll do the work. And the thing that I love, honestly, is, you know, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've shared this with Jason Carter. I've shared this with John Ossoff and now I'm sharing this with you. But it's it's critical for Democrats when we run, win, lose or draw. We stay relevant. And you have been uh, we spoke earlier before we started the show about you staying around and going to different counties and speaking. And, you know, it's really great because the thing that I think is most critical for Democrats in Georgia in 2019 is to maintain and build upon the infrastructure we've created this year. Build the infrastructure. Yes. So, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. First yeah. of all, um, I we need a the- clap button at the station <laughs> so that we can do that. We had, I had the experience of a lifetime. And I look, I was proud as hell to get a million eight votes over that um, as a first-time candidate for office. You know, it's a pretty steep learning curve, honestly, as a first-time candidate. But the thing that inspires me and that I hope people who hear this will think about and the days when they're frustrated or they don't feel well well represented, our politics is really divided right now. Mm -hmm. But I can assure you the people of Georgia are not. They have the same hopes for their kids. Mm -hmm. They want access to quality, affordable health care. They want fully funded public schools every year, Mm -hmm. not just an election year. They want leaders who actually want to do the damn job instead of the politics. And when you look at the tenor, yeah, you look at the tenor of the political conversation today, guys, this is not good enough. It's not good enough for my kids. It shouldn't be good enough for yours. We need leaders who act like Leaders who actually think it's their job to reach across the aisle 
don't compromise your values, but where you can find common ground, yeah. they need to make it their mission to be a part of the solution to the cancer that's in our politics right now instead of contributing to the problem. Yep. And so I'm not going anywhere. That's but for good. Democrats no, – we're not going to let you. No. <laughs> no, but for Democrats, we need to keep traveling. We need to keep going back to these communities and saying, number one, thank you. That's my number one priority mm-hmm. right now is going back to all of these places that offered – unbelievable support to an unknown first-time candidate Mm -hmm. and say thank you because that's the polite thing to do. We've sent hundreds of handwritten letters to these county parties and to individuals, and we'll keep doing that, and I'll keep traveling as much as I'm able. But then the other thing we need to do is sit down and have a conversation about how do we knock on doors when it's not an election year? That's right. How do we build campaign mm-hmm. training Don't for staff? Thunder, right? No, we're, but like, how do, right? Infrastructure. <laughs> because we're this close, guys. I know, right? Yeah, sorry, sorry. And, 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 and I, would be, I get excited I about this. I would be remiss if I did not bring up Carolyn Bordeaux mm-hmm. um, as the chair of the 7th Congressional District in Georgia. Uh, Carolyn ran in a race in the 7th Congressional District that was a deep red district uh, with 280,441 votes. Uh, Carolyn Bordeaux uh, received 140,011 votes, 49.9%. And Rob Woodall uh, uh, bought in 140,430. So to Carolyn Bordeaux, if you're out there listening, uh, she has been staying out there and relevant, and we want to thank you because we have not only moved the needle, we have flipped some precincts in Forsyth County Absolutely. and around the state. Democrats, if you're out there, if you're listening, uh, be encouraged, be excited, and trusting that we have people like Sarah and Carolyn out there and Lucy, who's going to represent us well. She was a flight attendant a couple of years ago, same one that is the mother of Jordan Davis, who died a, a violent death due to gun violence, and to see us as Democrats go from what has, you know, in, in some senses crippled us or held us back. We have empowered our base by running for office. And, you know, you didn't have a political background. You came from a business background mm-hmm. and you contributed and shared that. So, Eric, wh- wh- what are we going to do now? What's the, what's the next step in I'm this on conversation? The hot seat now, right, hot seat. I want to I want to add something about Carolyn Bordeaux because she had She's a great, fabulous. She had a great story. She is. So she had a little event um, a couple weeks ago. That's right. Like a thank you. Plug, mm-hmm. OK. And so. You know, she's a professor and she loves her facts and figures. And she goes, I got to tell everybody this. I got this thing from a friend. And she goes, it lists all the incumbents coming back. But the ones who lost, you know, their margin. And Rob Woodall, rather, won by the least of all the returning. Wow. Wow. Yes. Wow. So she was very excited. Yeah, because she was a hell of a candidate. And she the was. thing is, is having intelligent, compassionate competent people. I mean, that woman knows her way around a budget. Mm-hmm. Right? People don't right. realize this, but she actually helped run the budget for right. the state yeah. Senate here in Georgia. Yep. And she, you know, is one of those of us who still believe in facts and data. <laughs> and um, she would be great. I, I hope we haven't seen the last of her. We, she was a great friend and a good candidate. All right. So I've, there's some interesting stuff. You're, you're talking about people. One of the things that if people follow your social media, so why don't you just <laughs> you just tell them right now how to follow? Oh yeah, come on, you gotta follow because we're having fun now, right? So I, go. I had to join Twitter for the campaign. I was not a Twitter person before. <laughs> no, uh, I was too. very grateful to have the support of the chairman of Twitter and our campaign. So I've now become <laughs> a big fan. Um, but we're gonna keep on accountability, which was a theme throughout the campaign. Mm-hmm. So you can follow me at Sarah Riggs Amico S A R A H R I G G S A M I. ICO on Twitter. 
We're still on Facebook. We'll be transitioning that community into something else soon. So we'll leave that out there. Okay. Um, and on Instagram, I'm at Sarah Riggs Amico too, but come out and have fun. I mean, I look, you will get the unfiltered look <laughs> at what goes through my head, uh, whether that's my kids who this um, past weekend apparently renamed themselves from Ava and Sophia to Midnight and Sunlight and then proceeded <laughs> to dance around to Honky Tonk Woman in public. Um, you know, you, you will get glimpses into our family, but you also get glimpses into the things that I wonder when I see them on the news, where are our mm-hmm. senators and our congresspeople and our newly elected state executive officers? Why are they not commenting on this? You know, when you see soybean prices mm-hmm. crashing 7.23% for the year, where where is the commentary? Because, yes, Georgia producers don't necessarily export directly to China, right. but it's a commodity. Mm-hmm. And so by definition, they're impacted by price fluctuations mm-hmm. that are getting caused by this trade war. And so you wonder where what's with the cricket chorus or the study committee on education, right? Mm-hmm. When should we start the school year that literally had not a single educator, this is not a single educator on a committee about education policy? Guys, if you pay taxes in Georgia, this is your tax money at work. <laughs> That's right. There was one member of the school state board of education on that committee, and the rest of them were hospitality representatives. And God bless them. I love to travel. I love vacation. But we do not make education policy based on what's good for travel industry. We make it based on my kids and everybody else's kids who are in public schools, how they're going to get the best prepared for their future and get the best education we can give them. So when you see this stuff, follow us on social media. And if you haven't heard it, help us amplify. That's part of how we create accountability for these guys who think those offices are their birthrights. When you were talking about meeting all these candidates and people in like forming friendships last week you had on social media that you went to Ben Koo swearing in. Oh my God. I love him. He's so great. Ben, we we love you. (laughs) We had a great story from Brenda Lopez last show about Ben and basically how she inspired him. And then by knocking on his door, she ran for office and then convinced him to run. Right, And then like, couple days later, there you are posting about that. And I, and I think that the cool thing is that we, we seem to and, and this is no disrespect to any Democratic veterans that are out there. But I'm very encouraged to see mm-hmm. this this um, bench being created in the state of Georgia with people like Ben Koo and uh, Brianna Keaton, who just became the, the chair over in Gwinnett County. Everton Blair, Jasmine yeah. Clark, I mean, Sarah Karen Shack. I mean, geez, it'll take right. all day to listen. And, 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 and I think the beautiful thing is we're seeing young men and women that are stepping up to the plate uh, because not just of a sense of personal accountability, but because it's the right thing to do. And in saying that, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask you personally is when you see these types of things happening outside of this opportunity with the martyr vote in Gwinnett County next year, which is in March, which instead is in March, of in the general election, which should have been politics, and we would have got a much better turnout. But you know, that's neither here nor there. But when you look at some of the, the legislation, and I know none of us at this table are elected, but we're hearing about the potential of uh, marijuana, um, you know, expanded, uh, expanded cultivation and exactly. expanded medical marijuana. And, and and so, like, what are some of the issues going into twenty nineteen? Um, not nationally, but in the state of Georgia, for me, um, I 
I'd like to see more on criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see us really address the human trafficking issue. Um, I'd like to see us work on the opioid crisis in North and Middle and South Georgia. But when I think of these legislative issues, you mentioned common ground earlier. Mm -hmm. What are some issues that you see? I think Marta may be one of them that we can get not just bipartisan support on, but the momentum that you and Stacey Abrams and Lucy McBath and, you know, Carolyn Bordeaux and Otha Thornton, this momentum you created, how do we not allow it to diminish in 2019? So I love this question because I was cracking up a couple of weeks ago reading the AJC about how the Republicans in the state legislature have decided now to focus on, quote unquote, pocketbook issues, education, (laughs) healthcare, infrastructure. And I'm like, well, guys, that sounds a lot like the Democrats platform that we all campaigned on and you almost lost your seats over. So it's probably a good strategy. But I mean, honestly, that is what it is about. Right. At some point, we've got to understand that having being a part of a government means you're actually expected to govern and not just for the folks who voted for you. Uh Right. You're going to actually have to figure out how to sustainably fund public education in a way that continues to educate our children and our future workforce in a manner befitting a state with this kind of potential. Yeah. Right. With this kind of economy, with this level of uh, business that's now moving into the state and the jobs that will be created. Chatham County with the deepening of Savannah Port. Yeah. Well, I I know you're not a fan of Vogel, but but look at what they're doing now, literally busing in craft labor because they can't find it here in Georgia. That's true. And guys, this is not the Democrats fault. Like the Republicans have controlled this state and absolute control since 2002. That's right. And so what my hope is for this legislative session and for the years to come is that people actually do the job. And the job is this. You need to figure out how to get affordable, accessible, quality health care to everyone, no matter their zip code. I don't care where they live. And it's interesting to me now that you even see some of the statewide elected officials on the Republican side who are talking about, they don't call it Medicaid expansion, because that would be like admitting we were all right, right? Which, by the way, we were. Um, But, you know, they're calling it waivers, right? Mm -hmm. I don't really care what they call it. I just think they need to do it. Because when you sit with these families who are worried whether they are one illness away from financial ruin, who worry whether or not pre-existing conditions are actually going to be covered, who worry about whether or not they'll make it to a hospital if they have a car accident because the hospital closed in their area and it's now 60 miles to the closest one. This is a problem. And if you, as an elected official, if you don't have a solution If all you have is empty, partisan, petty rhetoric, you don't deserve to be there. Well, well, but but here's the thing, too. Right. So you just mentioned regardless of a zip code, regardless of where a person lives. One of the things I held on to when you ran for office was and and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said something like 79 counties in Georgia don't have an OBGYN. Right. right? Not surprisingly, we have the highest maternal mortality rate in the nation. Exactly. So how how do we when you look at this idea of a five Georgias where you have coastal Georgia and middle Georgia and south Georgia, north Georgia, Mm -hmm. metro Atlanta, how how do we really 
connect these areas while while Atlanta and the metro region thrives. I mean, you look at Cobb County, you look at uh, DeKalb, you look at Gwinnett, you look at Fulton, they're doing very well. Mm -hmm. But when you start going further south and you start looking at some of these areas that either don't have wireless broadband or don't have an OBGYN. Lack of infrastructure. How do we we help to create, one, this understanding that we're all into this together, right? I mean, it's easy to say there are 159 counties. But to me, I, I wish we looked at it as one Georgia, as Atlanta thrives, the state could thrive. And, you know, let's be honest, you know, every city is not going to be like Atlanta, but we should at least have some kind of plan to help out with that. So what would you say are some things we can do to connect the entirety of our state? Yeah, look, guys, um, here's the reality. When you are sick and need a doctor, it does not matter if you're black or white, if you are Christian or not, if you're a man or a woman, rich or poor, gay or straight, you need a doctor. These are issues that don't care whether you are a Republican or a Democrat or like most Americans, somewhere in between. And it is time that we started making our elected officials accountable for being a part of the solution making process. That's right. Right now, what we expect of our politicians is politics. Mm -hmm. And and just stop and think about that for a second. Yeah. Think about what that means. That means they're not focused on, you know, we had this incident here in West Cobb County, actually, in the last couple of days. Marietta Daily Journal published, I don't know if it's considered an op-ed or a letter to the editor. I mean, it's an atrocious piece of vitriol Mm -hmm. from the newly elected state House District 36 representative, Jenny Earhart, who's succeeding her husband in the role. And by the way, that's my House District. Uh, You'll remember Jen Slipikoff Mm -hmm. for that seat as the Democrat on the ticket. Um, She published, and again, she's going to the state legislature. The opening line of her article is calling two incoming school board members in Cobb County, which is a countywide office, Grinches. And saying they're looking with contempt and greed on Cobb seniors, just like the Grinch looked down with contempt and greed on Whoville. And about three sentences, if that, into reading this, the first thing that goes through my mind is, what is she trying to accomplish? Exactly. Like, this isn't productive. It doesn't problem solve. She's not even... On the school board. I mean, like, and I don't even know if she has kids in Cobb County Public Schools. P.S. I do. So I care about this issue. And I have two grandparents who are retired here. So I care about the senior tax exemption and the implications. And I care about how we sustainably fund our local government. Right. But the point is, why do we find that kind of politicking acceptable? It clearly the intent of her piece was nothing to do with coming up with a solution. It wasn't creating a conversation. It wasn't finding a solution. It was brazen, petty partisanship. That's right. And voters, here's the hard thing for all of us. And we all need to hear it because sometimes it's fun to engage in a slick jab or a slick burn here or there. It's not productive. Not at all. What you need to hear is we have to demand better, even and maybe even especially when it's somebody on your side. It, it like feeds down. OK, so like Trump, this is a good example. So Trump's bashing electric cars and we've talked about cars and stuff. And that's your wheelhouse, you know, cars. OK, I like how you put wheelhouse in there. We have a, a few million of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I did that of us all, you know. Uh. Okay. So, you know, he's bashing electric cars. And he said like a week or two. 
to go like, oh, there's no future for them. It's just stupid and whatever. So therefore, you should know if he said it, that's probably the opposite. And the future is fantastic for him. But now you have across the southeast, there are trucks blocking superchargers hmm. throughout the southeast. I saw that. All, so basically he's getting uneducated people that are listening to his nonsense and they're like, oh, those those people, they're damn electric cars. Let's just barricade so when they're driving their cars, they can't charge them again anywhere. Well, yeah, look, it's easy to take pot shots at Trump, right? I mean, God knows he gives us enough material like every day on Twitter. Um, but here's what I think is hard is to take that dynamic mm-hmm. and be a part of the solution. Right. And so what I would say is when I was a Republican, we were all about personal responsibility and choices. Now, admittedly, I've grown older, wiser, and more mature, and (laughs) now a proud Democrat. But I find it highly ironic to watch the corrosive sort of eating away at what used to be considered core conservative values, Mm -hmm. right? Local control. Look at what the Georgia state legislature is trying to do, taking the Atlanta airport Airport. away from the city and giving it to the state, right? Look at, um, there was an elementary school in Atlanta sometime this summer that changed, you you didn't have to say the Pledge of Allegiance, it was optional. Mm -hmm. Personally, I'm not sure why they would do that, but look, reasonable people can disagree on this, right? of course. Republicans, including my former opponent, went insane about it. And I'm like, wait a minute. I, I thought you liked right, local, local control, control. except mm-hmm. when they disagree with right. you, because it really mm-hmm. was never a philosophical argument right. for some of these people. Right. And and so the thing is, is watching the rhetoric turn into something where that bombast and salacious sort of sensationalism substitutes for actual policy making. It's actually kind of sad because there are important ideas that come out of the Republican Party. There are, you know, there were great leaders. I mean, Abraham Lincoln. Gosh, I just read Doris Kearns Goodwin's new book, Leadership. Well, I'm reading T. Oh, my gosh. Right um, yes. That amazing book. book. phenomenal in how he puts it together. Yeah. So. And, and look at him. And he put all of the different factions mm-hmm. of the Republican Party, as well as a couple of Democrats together, That's right, right? Um, to kind of, I think, former Democrats to put a team together that created the biggest tent and the broadest set of perspectives possible Mm -hmm. because he understood that it would lead to the best outcomes for the people. So for me, when I hear a story about the trucks blocking the chargers and things, you just kind of want to shake your head and say, what have you become? This isn't the party of Lincoln. You can't be the party of Lincoln and not want to finish the work of the civil rights movement. You can't be the party of family values and rip nursing babies away Mm -hmm. from their mother at the border. I mean, the Republican Party really needs to stop and think about who they want to be in our political dialogue for generations to come. And, and what kind of country they want their grandchildren to grow up in. And, you know, and, yeah. and I'm going to say this right now. I we need them. We actually need both sides to be we, we, healthy we do. and sane. And, and, and here's mm-hmm. the thing. I, I disagree with 99.9 bar over the nine things that Trump has done, right? <laughs> but the bottom line is this this criminal justice reform bill that just passed, I think, it's was a, a good, good bill. You know, and, yep. and I, I've known Van Jones for about 15 years. Uh, Van and I, you know, uh, worked with Newt Gingrich years ago to work on um, lowering the sentences of nonviolent uh, drug offenders because we felt like they were not being rehabilitated. 
So we worked on second chance initiatives around the country where we, you know, retrain people to have a skill set so that when they are uh, uh, released from prison, uh, we could address the recidivism rates by giving them employment that that has dignity attached to it and they could work. So you're absolutely right, because if we're not focusing on issues that can bring our country together, like you said earlier, we can disagree, we can debate. But what what are we doing to ensure that we're leaving future generations a better country than we were given? And that's really what it comes down to. And it's at a certain point, you know, it's sad to watch because I, I actually do mean it. I think the balance that exists in our system in our best moments are the places where the tension between two points of view is constructive. Mm -hmm. It leads to a better outcome than either side could get on its own. And we don't have that ability right now when you don't have a dance partner across the aisle who's willing to stand up for basic tenets of our democracy, like a free press, which, by the way, is not the enemy of the people. Um, For when we talk about checks and balances, an independent judiciary, a co-equal branch in the federal Mm -hmm. legislature, you know, at a certain point, I had to laugh because one of the things in the Jenny Earhart article or letter or whatever it was that she wrote, she said something like the Democrats were coming for their seniors, right? But she spelled Democrats with a lowercase d, which I'm a bit of a grammatical snob, so I kind of giggle. You know, they, they, they like to go Democrat too now, instead of like Democratic or Democrats. Yeah, well, I actually no. thought it was an interesting slip, yeah. right? Because I do think we're the little D right. Democrats right now. I think the Democratic Party, Big D, mm-hmm. is actually on the front lines of defending the institutions that make this republic the envy of free people and people who yearn to be free all over the world. I think one of the interest, most interesting takeaways of Trump so far is may, that maybe some people are starting to realize how solid our institutions really are, that our whole justice system, you kind of look at it and you look at all these countries around the world and they become undemocratic. They have military coups. They have – even if, if you look at Britain, they don't actually have a written constitution. They kind of go along and they have an unspoken rule of what the constitution uh-huh. is. Right. It's not, it's not set in, in stone. And here – you have a judicial system where Trump has said these things and they're like, no, look at we have this Supreme Court, the head justice, Roberts, who's made statements that a, a chief justice never says just because things are so out of control. But he's making it very clear that there is there's a checks and balances system. I want to go back for a second. We're talking about Republicans. The Republicans that won the most overwhelmingly governor wise this time around were uh, Massachusetts and Maryland. Uh, Baker, Not exactly MAGA territory. Right. Baker and Hogan. Both of them won 70-something percent of the vote. So they grew up like in the state where I did, where like people are by and large very liberal. There's something to that though. Both of those guys, they did not run as, as a Trump type of Republican. The kind of old school, what I considered like mid-Atlantic up to Northeast Republican. They're socially progressive and they are fiscally sane. But we've also got to look at primary systems, too, guys. I mean, here's the thing, right? There, um, I think it's an interesting observation, but I think it's one that we should look at for Democrats, too. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad thing to be able to find common ground with the other side, guys. All of the major legislation prior to this century that came through came out of bipartisan agreement. In fact, you know, after Kennedy was assassinated, Lyndon Johnson's great ability 
to maneuver the Civil Rights Act, the voting right passage, um, Kennedy's tax reform, which had been stuck in the Senate for ages, it all had to do with his experience as the majority leader of the Senate, yeah. right? He had this incredible ability to navigate navigate the architecture of our federal legislature and to work with the Republicans right. and the Democrats to get it. And he knew which of the Republicans he couldn't get. In fact, I think it was the Civil Rights Act, if I'm not mistaken. It might have been. It was either Civil Rights Act or the Voting Act, but I think it was a Civil Rights Act where the committee chair was an old uh, Republican from the South, mm -hmm. wouldn't let it out to the floor for the vote. And Johnson, because he had this incredible adeptness in the Senate, mm -hmm. understood that there was a workaround, that you had to get two-thirds of the senators to vote to pull it around the committee and onto the floor for a vote, which he ultimately mm -hmm. did. But he went senator by senator making sure, and cutting deals and making sure people would get to that vote to ensure that one of the most important pieces of legislation passed in this country's history would get there. Mm -hmm. That's leadership. And, and to put it into perspective, you know, and I, I just want to pull up to make sure I was correct, but Johnson signed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, mm -hmm. which dismantled the uh, segregation. And then there was the Voting Rights Act, where most of us are familiar with, of mm -hmm. 1965, um, prohibiting racist votes, voting laws like the Jim Crow era laws mm -hmm. and things like that. And the 1968 Civil Rights Act. And, and the thing that I will say is, why I agree, you know, and, and Thurgood Marshall has a, a critical role to play in that. But Dr. King and the movement, mm -hmm. I think what Johnson realized was that we were at a crossroads in our country, similar to where we are today. Mm -hmm. And regardless of what his motivation is, we could argue that on another show. Mm -hmm. um, I think that he understood fundamentally that there had to be some things in place to steer the country in the right direction. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think he understood how to navigate through a very complicated space. And if you look at what Trump is doing right now, which is kind of where I want to segue into some of the tariffs and some of the things that are going on. But when you look at Trump and this idea of strong arming the government, you know, when his party uh, brings something to the table and then with a simple tweet or reaction from one of his more radical or extremist followers can all of a sudden make him go or renege on something he may have said, it, it, it not only shows a sense of um, dysfunction, in my opinion, but it just puts us in a position as a country to say, well, where are we going? Right. So go ahead. No, I, I'm just gonna say, I think it's so much more basic than that for Trump. Yeah. Uh, for the president. Here's the thing. He is by refusing to work with the other side. Mm -hmm. It's literally like being a prize fighter in the ring with mm -hmm. one hand tied behind your yeah. back. Mm -hmm. The reason I brought up the Johnson example is when he went senator by senator to make sure those bills would pack it, it pass. And it wasn't just civil rights and the voting act. Remember he started with Kennedy's tax reform, which was revolutionary at the time. And he did it by going senator to senator, including Republicans. Yeah. That there was this understanding. And in fact, if you go back to the very founding of the country, we talked about this earlier, yeah. that I'm a huge nerd and I read the Federalist, Federalist papers. Right. <laughs> and Federalist number 62 is James Madison's outline of why we needed a Senate. History well, lesson alert. Yeah. Look, I mean, guys, it was designed to be the safety valve yeah. so that yep. the bottom didn't fall out of the federal legislature. It was designed, you know, the citizenship and the age requirements were greater than they were for the House. The terms 
were longer. Back when the country was founded, of course, prior to the 17th Amendment, senators were not directly elected from the people. They literally wanted that body in our federal government to be above politics, to be the grownups in the room, to be the people who could find common ground. And every one of us needs to worry that we're starting to hear these calls from people saying it's not working like that anymore. And I think, you know, one of the things, yeah, but it, but it's, but it's fixable. And I think to your point, um, you know, I was always struck by the story that the first time Dr. King spoke to President Johnson after Kennedy was assassinated, he's famous for saying, I think he may be able to go places with civil rights, the Civil Rights Act that Kennedy Could couldn't go. go. That's right. Yeah. And so th- there's it's all about the leader mm-hmm. in that position. And to your point, mm-hmm. I don't know that President Trump has the desire to acquire that kind of skill. And if he does, I hope he'll do it soon because I just don't know how much stress on these institutions Mm -hmm. that we can continue to place on an independent judiciary or on a co-equal legislative branch before there are real cracks in the foundation. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I feel so passionately about us getting back to, and by the way, Republicans, if you're listening to this, or (laughs) OPPA researchers, if you're listening to this, or whatever (laughs) my next race is, (laughs) you're supposed to be the party of strict constructionists, right? Mm -hmm. And we know because of Federalist 62 Mm -hmm. exactly what the intent and design of that Senate was supposed to be, and you know darn good and well they're not living up to it, and that it's partly because of your party's leadership in that chamber there you go i'll push back on our own people because we have in the democratic party uh i want to say like an extremist kind of movement of our own i'd call like our own tea party starting the litmus test kind of it's the all or nothing like if you so if you say anything like you can be 90 percent for something but if you're not that hundred, you're not any good. And I remember when George W. Bush was president and the, the knock on Bush from the left besides many other things was it's black and white. That's all. There was no gray. There was nothing in between. It was either you were with us or against us. I hear a lot of our left. You're either with us or against us. And so it seems like emulating the Tea Party Trump type of style probably isn't the best prescription for winning, uh, you know, races as a Democrat. Well, we're seeing this play out already in the 2020 presidential cycle on our side, right? So if you look at the articles that have started to come out about Beto or Roe or works. I'm probably going to have to learn how to say that name, you know. Uh, It's going to come up a lot. I have a feeling it will. But Beto, his voting record that he voted with Republicans a certain percentage of the time. By the way, examining somebody's voting record is fair game. Mm -hmm. But framing it as what was the percentage of time is relatively useless, guys. What you need to be looking at is what were the issues he voted on with them? We have got to, as a party, Eric, just like you're saying, reframe this Mm -hmm. to content, to substance, to governance, to problem solving. I mean, geez, guys, the Republicans have left that field wide open and we should run the ball down the middle. And not not only should we run the ball down the middle, but we need to just really rethink what it is we're trying to attain. You know, 2020 cannot be about impeaching Donald Trump. 
Now, granted, right. you know, I, I understand that people are, you know, we, we want to get the guy out of office, but Democrats have to do what we do best, which is unify our country and come up with a vision and a strategy and articulate what that is. Because for me, you know, and, and, and we, we heard about uh, Elizabeth Warren made an announcement this morning. I don't know if you want to comment or not. I will personally say I'm a, a big fan. I love her. But, you know, I, I've got my own a couple of other folks like Steve Bullock out of Montana. Bullock, I think Steve, Steve is a phenomenal guy. Um, we've heard floated around this idea of, of a Biden O'Rourke ticket. I, I, I am excited about O'Rourke, but I don't know a lot about the guys. I'm not one of these people that uh, follow this 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 popularity train and not really dig into their their track record and what they stand for. So while I'm excited, I also understand the importance, Eric, of a vision and of having a real real ideas. Like my grandfather served United Nations and they had this mission for sustainability that said we are well able to meet the needs of today without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Mm. What is our vision that is going to put our country, our children and our grandchildren in a position to thrive? And and John Adams even said this one. We're like super history motivated today, right? Uh-huh. But John Adams <laughs> My said nerdism that, is contagious. Yeah. But, but John <laughs> Adams once said that I must study, you know, war so that my children can study live art and peace. tapestry yeah. and they must study art and tapestry that their children may live in peace, right? Mm-hmm. So this idea that we've got to have a vision, I would challenge any and every Democratic candidate and Republican that what I would hope would primary Trump. We welcome you. Yeah, we, we welcome, welcome it, you. But I would hope that we put out a real vision right. that people can understand and buy into. So one of our problems is it's like the Obama model. People are super excited about Obama. And then what happens? So the Democrats get like wiped out across the country because it's like – we got our guy, like our superstar guy, and pe- that, that's what Democrats are doing. Well, he was pretty fabulous. He was I awesome. <laughs> and you got to meet him get your picture taken. I did. I got his endorsement. I got Sorry? to sit and have a conversation with him. I made him laugh with a joke about democracy. I was very proud of that moment. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, it, look, the vision thing is huge, guys. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, I think it's Obama was part of that. So if you look at the Democratic presidencies that have really reshaped um, – equity and justice mm-hmm. and progress in this country, they've always been tied to a bigger vision. So Obama right. had hope and change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was in the moment, right? That what the country needed in that moment, it was mm-hmm. relevant in that moment. He couldn't have planned for it 20 years before, and he may not have worked 10 years after. But Franklin Roosevelt, right? With the New so, Deal, mm-hmm. if you look at Johnson and the Great Society, mm-hmm. if you look at Kennedy and we're going to the moon. And remember, when Kennedy gave that speech, uh, we had absolutely zero of yep. the technologies That's that would right. enable us to get to the moon by the end mm-hmm. of the decade. And so you had these great visionaries who said, this is what I want society to look like in the world I want to live in. And here's how we create it together and that's what's like disappointing nowadays it's like i want that per- instead of we can't do this you know mm. like oh we can't um build new bridges or what have you it's just like we talk about clean energy clean energy is the future and it's so economically viable you're talking about a massive job creator instead we go no Let's go and do coal, which we're not doing coal, and those jobs keep going away. Let, let's roll back the mileage standards. 
winterization of homes, energy efficiencies, all these things are clean water in areas like Flint, the Savannah Riverside, Mm -hmm. water infrastructure, energy infrastructure. These Mm -hmm. are all things that that we we should be focusing on, unfortunately. Even locally. I mean, look at the DeKalb water leak and the boil alerts. This is a real issue. This has happened several times in the last couple of years. Yeah. And the the thing about infrastructure, guys, I mean, again, as somebody who runs a trucking company, infrastructure is kind of a thing for us, right? Um, I have 2,000 trucks a day, approximately. Approximately that are out on these roads and bridges all over North America. And infrastructure really does require investment. And by the way, here's here's a really simple philosophy when you think about education or healthcare or infrastructure from a government point of view. In the business world, we know that getting a return on investment Mm -hmm. Uh presumes you've made an investment. Yeah. And so we really, you know, these things wear out pipes, uh, sewer systems, roads, bridges. And there has to be some way to come together and get the broadband in our rural areas, for example, to get uh, a port that continues to grow and thrive and drive commerce, but doesn't damage the ecosystem in in a way that's irreparable or that we can't Mm -hmm. still go to the Georgia coast, which is one of my favorite places in the world and enjoy the beauty of it. Right. The Camden spaceport is a great example of Mm -hmm. that. The proposed Camden spaceport. Mm -hmm. There are legitimate environmental and safety concerns from those communities that need to be talked through. That's right. But at the same time, the opportunity to create a 21st century industry and economy in that region, if we can put a man on the moon, I mean, I hope we can launch some rockets safely and say, you know, so we've got to be able to balance the interests. That's the piece. Balance is the word I keep coming back to in terms of what's Mm -hmm. missing in our system. One thing I want to talk to you about is that, you know, we know you as, as a candidate and, for those of, that don't know about Jack Cooper, that don't know your background, your history, um, I think your business perspective is very unique. And I think you have a perspective politically and from, from a corporate background that you can really look and understand some of the issues. So I wanted to kind of jump into some of the tariffs because sure. for me, you know. Um, it's a big deal in our industry. It's huge. And and we th- there are several tariffs. Uh, one of the first ones I paid attention to were the ones that affected solar panels in the United States. I thought that was a big area we missed. Uh Eric mentioned coal earlier. I felt like if we could manufacture wind panels in the United States rather than getting it done off seas, that would have been a, a tremendous increase for jobs and opportunity. Be in the great United jobs States. to have in Southwest Georgia. Exactly. For you know, and so you know when you look at the the current state of it, what I want to talk to you about is you know in March of this year, Trump announced his intention to impose twenty five percent tariffs on steel and ten percent tariff on aluminum imports. And he literally said, um, I think it was a tweet he made that, that he said something like trade wars are good and easy to win. Right. And and we're now seeing yeah, see, that didn't age well. Yeah. And, and no. we're seeing farmers. <laughs> we're seeing the auto industry. We're seeing, you know, you look at, at, at what happened with Harley Davidson. I mean, you look at General Motors and what this is. These are staples of American society that are not necessarily saying we're taking a political stance against the president. The president, they're saying, look, we're, we're being affected. We're being impacted. And, and you talked to me earlier, which I want you to talk to our listeners 
about this tremendous impact that some of us may see coming and those of us that don't don't understand the you know the the ramifications of what's happening and I wanted you to kind of share with us today what that looks like and and I think you're not only going to be great in, in our state but I think you have a, a national voice and I'd like you to share with us some of these things that we may not be paying attention to that are going to directly or independent or indirectly affect us not just as Georgians but even for some of our far- farmers and agriculturally in our state. Just talk to us a little bit about how this is impacting us. Thank you so much. So yeah, so my academic background was in undergrad politics, public policy, economics. Um, So, and that was, you know, already a decade into my nerd career. So (laughs) um, I love this stuff and specifically the intersection of business government and the international economy. Um, I went, in fact, was one of three students from around the world in 2001 who was selected to go to the Harvard Business School Master's in Business Administration program straight out of college. And at the time, they hadn't had a student go from college to the MBA program directly in over 10 years. And they literally picked three of us from around the world. Um, So it it was uh, an incredible experience. My first week at business school actually was September 11th. And my class was about 37% international students. So, you know, the guy sitting next to me was a lieutenant colonel in the um, Israeli Defense Forces. The professor who was teaching my class that day was a retired Marine. Um, There was a gentleman who had been working in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a Saudi Arabian woman who I think might have been a member of the royal family. I mean, these were the kind of people literally sitting in the room as the world sort of changed around us. And oddly enough, my class at Harvard was the first class, I think maybe ever, that had a Catholic priest in it as well. I I don't think Father Tom is a priest anymore. I I can't remember. He's the nicest guy. But it was so interesting, the makeup of our class, this huge percentage of international, happened to have a member of the clergy and a ton of military. You know, Harvard has a great tradition of having a lot of military students. But it was interesting because our first week of school was September 11th, right? So whereas in a normal MBA program, my guess would be there was probably much more focus on commerce and sort of the economics, macro and micro, um, and management, my particular generation at the Harvard Business School, my particular class that literally started school the week of September 11th, had a very different focus, a lot of which was how policies, um, public policy, uh, large-scale investment in infrastructure, which typically requires governmental financing, Mm -hmm. um, how all of these things kind of bump into each other in the political economy and create consequences, Mm -hmm. whether that's profits for a business or an entity or whether that's uh, you know a rising tide of democracy in a place yeah. where it doesn't exist. So I had this incredible opportunity to study in that place at that moment mm-hmm. with this incredible group of people. Yeah. You know, we talked earlier a, a friend of mine from my class who was also very young, um, Divya Surya Devara, oh, is now forward. the CFO at General Motors. Yeah, General Motors. And she she's thirty nine years old and she's the CFO of all of General awesome. Motors and she's killing it. She's amazing <laughs> at her job. You know, women talk- are doing great, not just politically. Yeah, right? Where our women are doing a phenomenal Charles job. Charles Duhigg, who was on the cover of the Atlantic for this article, Why Are We So Angry? I mean, we had this like mm-hmm. incredible class of people. So for me, 
that's the context in yeah. which I learned about this stuff. Of course. Yeah. And now I look at it as a woman who runs a trucking company that delivers between 3.6 and 4.1 million cars a year in North America. And the tariffs are having an incredible impact on our customers, Ford, General Motors, Chrysler, mm-hmm. you know, all of the manufacturers. And what I think people who might be listening may not realize, if you're not knee-deep in automotive like I am sort of every day, the closure of these General Motors plants, you know, it's actually – Mary Barra is an incredibly astute executive. I think she's one of the best CEOs in the country. Um, she's doing all the right things for her business. But when they start talking about localizing production, you know, producing cars where they're purchased, part of the whole reason Trump started a trade war – Right, which it turns out, as we all know, is not easy to win. Um, It's more like the butter battle, and Dr. (laughs) Seuss wrote about. Um, When they start localizing production, making these decisions to put infrastructure and plants and manufacturing facilities Mm -hmm. in different countries where they sell the cars, part of the reason you're starting a trade war is to fix trade deficits, Mm -hmm. right? But if your exports are going to go down Mm -hmm. because we're now moving production into different countries, it's you know. Biting your nose to spite your face or whatever the expression is. GM actually said, just as I quote, I want you to finish, less investment, fewer jobs and lower wages. And this would all harm the American auto industry. Well, it will. But more importantly, I want you guys to understand how long it will harm it. If they're putting a new factory in a different country that's not here or not in our Rust Belt, you know, where a lot of our businesses, for example, they're not going to redo that for 20 or 30 years. I mean, these are long-term infrastructure investments for those businesses. And it's not just automotive. It's manufacturing writ large, right? And at the same time, you know, not only have you disrupted the supply chains, right, with inputs for different manufacturing process, or but it's also things like agriculture, which is Georgia's largest segment of the economy. That's right. And our poor farmers here in Georgia, guys, they have been hit, and punched and kicked while they're down. They've had, you know, years of falling prices in some markets. Like I think peaches is one of the ones that has struggled. They've had the hurricane. They've had um, now the tariffs. Cotton, I think, still may end up up for the year, but that a lot of our production was wiped out in Hurricane mm-hmm. Michael. Um, but soybeans, that's the one that keeps standing out for me. Yeah. Um, China in the past has bought, I think it's 57.3% of us exports in soybean. Now it's, and in November it was zero, Mm -hmm. not a single soybean guys, not one edamame. (laughs) And, And I think we need to, we need to hear this and understand that we're not only destroying markets. In fact, I've read stories where this cost of storage for some of these farmers has gone so high, they'd rather let it lay fallow in the fields. Right. Mm -hmm. And we are not only destroying the markets for today, I believe in things like soybeans, you're starting to see Brazil may not be able to totally make up the difference in U.S. production right now. But over time, some combination of countries will. That's and right. that market will not look be at ours. What, look at what Mexico said about corn. I mean, they're, they're right. talking about no, you know, bypassing mm-hmm. American farmers. Yeah. And, and I mean, if you think of corn, if you think of soybeans, if you think of these industries that we may take for granted, it could literally cripple us in so many ways. So, you know, with, with that being said, I mean, you know, and you've answered some of it, but generationally, you know, I, I think there's something like, 46 million people in the United States living in poverty. 
right? We all know that access, um, access to healthcare is great um, and, and critical and, and access to, you know, services that can help out in our society. 46 million people living in poverty in the United States, 1.9 million living in poverty in the state of Georgia. How are these decisions going to impact individuals and families, especially working families, ability to get out of poverty. Because when you see, when you're talking about losing these potential jobs and opportunities for generations, that sets us back. And God forbid we go from 46 million to 50 or 55 million people, but it just seems like it puts us uh, in the United States from an economic standpoint, such a crippling position, because let's be honest, technology isn't slowing down. Automation is coming in at a rate that we can't keep up with in so many paces. What does that mean for us as a society? Yeah, there's you need to look at it in terms of short, medium and long term consequences mm-hmm. for the economy. So in the short term, we are going to suffer because as things like health care costs are mm-hmm. rising um, and potentially interest rates. Mm -hmm. And so costs of housing, for example, may go up. And as government benefits, we talked about SNAP reductions of food stamps uh, earlier. So in other words, the assistance for people who are climbing out of the hole of poverty is uh, is being cut back, which Mm -hmm. deepens the hole, number one. Mm -hmm. But number two, you're kind of taking away their ramps. Right. And then if you start talking about chronically underfunding public schools and underpaying educators so that we can't attract the best and the brightest and more importantly, retain them. So we have that institutional knowledge within the education system. And then on top of that, you do things like what Georgia's Senate study committee did with this school start date. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. You don't make education policies based on what's good for an industry. I mean, I appreciate it uh, as a business person. I love that they consider economic impacts. But, geez, this is this is not what I want as a parent of two kids in those public schools. So if you're piling on ed- that and education is kind of that passport out of poverty for so many people like yeah. my dad by the way, who was first in his family to go graduate from college, and he could only do it. Uh, He had two options. He was really fast. He ran like a 430 mile in high school. Yeah, he still holds a lot of records in St. Louis, actually. Um, But he, he got a track scholarship to Southern Illinois. Mm -hmm. And he was worried if he took it and got injured, he'd never graduate from college. And so he went instead to General Motors Institute, which is now Kettering University. And the deal was it was a co-op. So he would work for six weeks and then he would go to school for six Mm -hmm. weeks. And that's how he paid his way, work in a General Motors factory for six weeks and then go to Kettering or what was then General Motors Institute for six weeks. And that's how he paid his way through college. In fact, Mary Barra, CEO and chairman at General Motors also is a GMI graduate. Um, And so what was great about that program was, number one, you could be poor, 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 poor. As poor as it comes, and you could still go debt-free to college, but it didn't cost taxpayers a nickel. And for General Motors, they had this incredible pipeline of talent, including their current CEO and chairman, who came out having spent as much time on the application of knowledge as on the acquisition of it. So it produced the head of Delphi as a GMI graduate. I mean, it produced these incredible managers, right? Um, in fact, one of our board members, Sam Torrance, who used to run Just Born Candies, they make Peeps and Hot Tamales yeah. and Mike and Ikes, and he oh, was the number two guy right. at Mack Trucks yeah. before. Yeah, I mean, he's fabulous. He's also a GMI graduate. It really produced some incredible executives. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the poverty question has to start, you know, years, if not decades, before mm-hmm. you're a poor working person. That's right. Right? It has to start in pre-K how, with how, access to education. How much 
should poverty dominate the discussion for the next president of the United States? Well, in, until it's gone in the United States of America, it should dominate a lot of all well, of the, our thinking. And, and the reason why I'm saying right. is because, you know, and, and I'm, I'm using this as an example. So for anyone listening, um, you know, please don't take this the wrong way. But, you know, poverty just seems to be that that issue that we don't talk about. You know, it, it seems. And, and just so we're clear, when, when we talk about um, running for office in the United States um, in 1968, Dr. King had the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, he was assassinated. Uh, 61 days after Dr. King, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Both of these individuals fundamentally understood, like Dr. King even is, is, is recorded as saying that he felt that racial justice could not be as impactful and effective as economic justice. So he began to organize workers, black, white, brown, you name it. He organized workers. Bobby Kennedy went to Appalachia um, 50 years ago and won in an area that's now Trump con- country because we neglected it. But when you look at uh, pre- people that have run for office, you know, even people that I've liked, uh, Poverty, you know, while we might say we need to eradicate poverty, it's not something that folks have put out a plan. Like you just said about generationally, we don't we don't talk about it. We, we shouldn't be reactionary about poverty. We should be proactive. Mm-hmm. So how, that's why I'm asking that question. That's why I posed yeah, that so, so it's two things. Number one, you know, you're asking specifically in the context, I think, of the 2020 presidential campaign. My opinion is this is not the issue that's missing from the Democratic primary in 2020 presidential. And we can talk after this. I'll tell you, just remind me to come back (laughs) to it. I will tell you exactly what I would say if I were running for president in 2020. Oh, we want to hear that. <laughs> this is a blue top exclusive. Sarah's, uh, Sarah's uh, fantasy presidential league here. Uh, but no, I mean, there there is something that nobody's saying that would make a meaningful difference in the race. And we should come back and talk about that. But I don't think it's the poverty question. All right. So we're going um, to talk about that before we close. Yeah. So on the poverty question, though, I think this is super important. I think we need to start reframing the poverty problem. Mm-hmm. We need to reframe it as solvable. So I think the reason people don't talk about it is because quietly or even subconsciously, so many of them have given up on the idea that it's fixable. And you and I have talked about this, guys, from the very first time we met. Mm-hmm. I do not fundamentally believe in unsolvable problems. Yeah. Right. And I know that that language got co-opted a lot through the Democratic Party mm-hmm. of Georgia last year, which, by the way, I love <laughs> because I think it's a great position for us to have. Yeah. But poverty is solvable. Everybody needs to hear this. Mm-hmm. Um, my folks grew up with parents who were, for much of their lives, in abject poverty. You know, my um, my dad tells the story that when his parents could finally afford to buy a house, mm-hmm. um, it was I think two bedrooms and a carport, and it cost twelve or thirteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And they had family who drove all the way from Tennessee. to St. Louis to see it because it was such a big deal to have somebody who was a homeowner in the family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mom, her mom cleaned, had an eighth grade education, cleaned hotel rooms and hospital rooms her entire life. I remember her being a housekeeper at the hotels or at the hospital in Lake St. Louis when I was in middle school. Um, So, you know, my granddad was a Korean War Navy vet he and my my mom's parents would kind of tag in and out with four kids in a working class family taking turns on night shifts so that somebody could be there with the kids to make ends meet while they worked multiple jobs. And what I wonder is if they existed today, 
instead of in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, mm-hmm. would they have been able to climb out? I don't think they don't would think have. So. Yeah. And so we need to go back and look at, was it union representation, right? Because it's not a coincidence from my perspective that as union membership mm-hmm. has declined, we've also seen income inequality sort of grow exponentially. Um, but I also, and I think that was because having a voice at the table around pay, um, pensions, um, working conditions was really important. My daughters and I, when we were up at the Dahlonega mine, you know, sort of touring North Georgia this weekend, um, as we were walking out of the mine, my seven-year-old's like about to turn eight. She's pretty woke. (laughs) Like she, (laughs) she reads all those who is biographies and she's read, you know, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Martin Luther King Jr. and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Malala. And like, mm-hmm. she's, she's like pretty with it for like a <laughs> seven year old kid. And as we're walking out, I said, so Fia, can you imagine how dangerous it was to work in these mines? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were talking about how they'd go deaf from the machines. Um, the lungs would be torn up and they would die from the powder, the silicate in the powder as they're blasting out some of the gold mine. And I said, that's part of how we got unions right. actually. Mm-hmm. And the the guide overheard us talking about it and giggled and turned around and said, yeah, actually it is. And and it kind of turned into this discussion about the dignity we give working people. That's the point. Sorry, I know I took a minute to get there. But the point (laughs) is the dignity of working families, I think, has fallen out of the dialogue. And as Democrats, it has. And we need to, as Democrats, be very careful that we don't let identity politics, Mm -hmm. although representation is really important and having a full room that's representative of our people is really important. We need to be careful that we're framing poverty as something that affects people of all walks of life. That's right. Whatever color, whatever religion. That's right. And we talked about it earlier. Mm -hmm. One thing that I, you know, and I've publicly called the Democratic Party out on is, you know, we can't keep coming to communities of color just with mass incarceration and poverty. You know, every African-American's priority is not mass incarceration and poverty. We've got to learn that mass incarceration, in fact, you know, may disproportionately affect certain groups, but this impacts all of us. Mm-hmm. Poverty affects all of us. Well, and what if you know, one of those people critical. in there on a low level, level marijuana possession charge, yep. for example, a third striker, yep. right? What if one of them might have gone to college Found a cure for cancer. Yep. Mm-hmm. It affects everybody. It affects everyone. It, it, it takes human capital and potential out of our economy, out of our system, out of our understanding of who we are as a people. So I think as Democrats, we've got to be very careful to make sure we put poverty front and center, but put it out there as something that's a drain on our economy too. Right. This, yeah. this, this strips us of the potential we have for greatness by denying people by virtue of how much money they have or where they were born or the happenstance of their birth in whatever fashion, you know, putting them in to a place where they can't reach their potential. Yeah. It's like we need to recalibrate, you know, for example, say you work at Walmart or Target, whatever, and you work full time, even with the wage increases they've had and occasional bonuses, you can't live off of that. You can't live a, you're barely getting by if, if at all. And these same corporations are getting, all types of tax uh, benefits. Well, which we now know went disproportionately to share buybacks. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, as somebody who spends a good deal of her time in capital markets mm-hmm. work, duh. I mean, that was so predictable. This right. was not ever going to be a tax cut mm-hmm. for companies that benefited workers. What companies do is we repurchase our securities mm-hmm. when we believe they're undervalued and when we have excess cash. 
or we make capital investments. Yep. But very, very rarely would you have an event like that where shareholders right. in a public company in particular mm-hmm. wouldn't demand that capital be put to work right. for shareholders. And so I think we also need to think about, you know, we live in this incredible information age, right? 5G is going to make that even more so. The Internet mm-hmm. of Things makes mm-hmm. that even more so. So how do we take that knowledge base that travels so fluidly now and harness it to change this problem? Mm-hmm. And the reality is we now have the ability to tell people what kind of company they're spending their money at. That's great. And so we need to harness public opinion to say, look, you know, if you don't want to support work to combat climate change, no problem. If you don't want to serve people because of who their choice of life partner is, fine. But we're going to make sure every customer who walks in your door knows it. Yeah. We're mm-hmm. going to make it publicly, easily accessible to see, you know, who's a Patagonia and who's not. That's right. Right? I mean, look at the work. They gave their whole tax right. break back right. to preserving public lands and combating mm-hmm. climate change. I'm going to buy Patagonia till hell freezes up. <laughs> right? I mean, yep. this is, it, guys, it doesn't have to just be through government. Sometimes Democrats, we default to what can we do in the government to fix it? And government has yeah. a role. But we also have I see where you're going. the internet. Yep. We have, you know, mm-hmm. this incredible sh- social media infrastructure around the one, world. One of the areas we, we have lacked in is just educating our base. I yes. think, yep. you know, when I talk to regular folks that, you know, they might not be Democrat on paper, but they're just good people. You know, they align with our views. We we have to do a better job of telling our story. Right. So we're coming to the point where uh, we've got a couple more questions. And we want to wrap up because this has been packed with really great information. So I have a You're quick, getting Sarah unfiltered I, here, guys. I, I, I got a quick flash round. Okay? <laughs> we have so many more questions. <laughs> yeah, here, right? All right, I'll get short right. answers. So here here's the thing. Not my strong well, I, I'm going to kind of I'm going to shake it up a little bit to get you right. just the Sarah. And then Eric will we'll go into some, you know, really closing out on, you know, we definitely want to hear. And then I'll tell the 2020 candidates how to that. win. So <laughs> number one, what were you optimistic about in 2018? I mean, granted, and this, this um, we're all optimistic about our families and our health and all, but I mean, what out of 2018 made you optimistic? Civic engagement. Civic engagement. Cool. Okay. And what are you optimistic about going into 2019? Going back to the gym. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, what movie are you looking forward to seeing? Oh my God. So many, you know, I'm a film nerd. I know, right? Give I know. Me the top and I worked three. as an agent for years. Um, <laughs> uh, top three right now. Give me I want to see Aquaman. Okay. I admit it. Jason Momoa was a client at the agency where <laughs> wow. I worked. And I remember when he was just starting and wow. like we were all like, hey, we have this new client. And he's like really cool. And I love that he's um, having this success. His career is taking off. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and so that's one. Um, I like to see all the Oscar bait. Yeah. So I will basically. Have you seen the Green Book? I have. It's magnificent. I love and the Green Book. And if you Book. have not seen it, guys, go see it. <laughs> um, I'm really torn, by the way, for those of your listeners who watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> I am really having a hard time with season two. We just started the second season. Oh, Different. it's so weird, right? Yeah, it's so not it's the same. Weird. It's no. really dark and kind of depressing in some uh, parts. And But then it's punctuated with this humor. So I'm still, <laughs> I'm, I'm only like four or five episodes in. So I'm holding out hope that it recovers the mojo right. that makes me laugh so much. But that's one of my favorite shows. I'm, I'm ready for April because Game of Thrones is kind of coming to a close. <laughs> Game of Thrones fans. So they're in their final season. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so anything so, that's Oscar bait, I will see. And anything that's like a Bruckheimer or superhero popcorn flick. I am literally the weirdo <laughs> that watches the art house movies and, and the blockbusters. All right. And what, what are you listening? 
listening to, if if if, you, if I were to jump in your car and turn on the radio, what what, what song would come on? Okay, if you were to jump in my yeah, car no, and no, turn on the radio, yeah, no, don't think about it. We want we want the honest, <laughs> unfiltered Sarah. So I just finished the audible book of Doris Kearns Goodwin's leadership, and now I'm on Lincoln. And now I'm listening to Founding Brothers, which is a biography about the founding fathers and how they constructed the Constitution. In other words, look. In other words, you're either going to be really inspired, or you're going to go to sleep when yeah. you get in Sarah's no, you're car. Be so inspired. <laughs> okay, and that's yeah. And then, I, by the way, I recommend. I've read this book before, so I love it, and. I recommend it. If you're going to do music, man, um, I'm kind of like a Motown fanatic. So okay. I'm old school. And the other day, my, go with that, my seven-year-old bro. asked me, what does funky mean? Oh, um, and I was like, I said, well, funk was the era of music between Motown. And, and I, my husband looked at me and I'm like, I just want to tell her about Cloud Nine and then we're fine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so anything that's Motown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. So you answered two questions with one. My next was going to be, what are you reading? But now audiobooks can take that place. So I'm going to say, I'm going to ask this last question and then we can, uh, Eric, I know you had something else to put out there. Sure. And I want to hear 2020. That is what I am on my edge of my seat for. What is If we were to be invited to the Amico household, mm. What dish? The Amico Asylum. Yeah, the Asylum, <laughs> right? What What dish would we be served with that would make us? It's going to be Italian. Come back, right? Yeah, like I mean, you because you have deep Italian roots on your husband's side. <laughs> yeah. What is the dish or two dishes that you, that would just absolutely be a must-have? If we came to the Amico house. Okay. So my husband is an immigrant from Italy, as you all know. He still, you know, talks funny and cooks like an old Italian nonna. Uh, and I have currently <laughs> nine Italian house guests staying in my house. So uh, we need to get a um, get invited over. For dinner. <laughs> I know that sounds so good. So if you came over and my in laws were cooking, you would have probably we made um, a homemade ragu, which oh. by the way takes three days to make if you make Meat it properly. We meat, okay. only beef for us. Some okay. people mix the meats, but not us. Yeah, um, I like beef only. Yeah, we made um, homemade ragu and then homemade bechamel, uh, bechamel sauce okay. and made lasagna for Christmas Day, which is kind of a tradition. Oh, yes. Oh, but it's yeah. all, it literally takes like four days to make and it is magnificent like I think pure needs inducing to be a, a, goodness. a Miko recipe book yeah that, oh, that we can put on I will totally publish to. recipes <laughs> oh my god um, and so and you would have a fabulous um cafe latte oh. because we have like a professional barista coffee machine at home and my husband cappuccino it makes whatever my husband tells it to. Like he he makes it like a barista. Wow. He, he doesn't believe in like the press things. Like, and that's before we talk K cups and environmental destruction. See, my right? wife will tell you I am the worst person to have a chicken parmesan, a cappuccino, certain dishes that I grew up with in Italy. Yeah, yeah. It's um, not even the same with a cappuccino, I I will literally not. I will complain. So you would have since my mother in law is visiting from. Uh, she's originally from Novara, which is where they grow a lot of the rice to make risotto. Mm-hmm. Um, you would have the most incredible risotto you've ever had. And since my husband grew up on an island as a free diver um, and spear fisherman, he literally, my mother-in-law used to give him a shopping list in the morning and they would drop him off in the ocean and he would go and spear the fish that they needed to fill their freezer or their fridge. So you would probably also have uh, incredible fish. Last night we ate 
Georgia mountain trout, which we wow. fished ourselves. Um, on, did you put that on Instagram? Uh, I did. Sweet. Ava, my five-year-old <laughs> caught a trout as big as her leg. And there's a picture of her measuring it against her leg and a wow. video of her taking it out of the little pond. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. So you would have some fish. And then I am, my husband is hopeless when it comes to baking or desserts. <laughs> so I would probably make you... Um, Something from scratch and the desserts. What would that be? Well, I make fresh pumpkin pumpkin pie. Okay. And I challenge anyone that you will not have a better recipe. Oh, wow. (laughs) I I will take that challenge. It's homemade pumpkin pie from scratch, including cooking the pumpkin and everything. Uh, So in other words, if there was a primary with you and any other person out there and there was a baby. If it were based on pumpkin pie, I would be so ahead of the bat. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's what you would eat. And then... Um, I would say you would probably also be treated to to really nice vino because, you know, Italian wines. Okay, so I was like, I talked to my wife and I said, all right. Oh, no. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so this is what I said. As a non-entrenched political person, like what, as a candidate, she wanted to know what made you the most hopeful and what made you the saddest for the future. And I know there's kind of like a downer component, but there's also an upper. I mean, like. What makes me the saddest is that some people have given up hope. Mm -hmm. I would agree. And I think they've done it way prematurely. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm an optimist. So what makes me the saddest is to see people who feel like there is no chance in their lifetime somebody will represent them in their Mm -hmm. government and their views and their problems and their struggles and their life and their experience. Um, I think we have the best design system in the world for all of that. We just need leaders who know how to harness it. Um, So the thing that makes me hopeful is looking at the people, you know, who aren't career politicians, Mm -hmm. who maybe don't know how everything is done. I mean, I definitely put myself in that category. (laughs) I don't think very many candidates sit down and do interviews that are this long or candid. Um, But for me, that the idea that like real people who talk like human beings and not automatons or, <laughs> you know, who the people who will come and just say, I don't know the answer, mm-hmm. but I can tell you how I would go about trying to solve it yeah. or who say, you know, that other side, damn it, they had a better idea than we did <laughs> and we need to figure out how to work with them. Yeah. That what makes me hopeful is this new generation of people has an incredible blend of idealism and ha- um, with a pragmatic streak. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a funky combination, mm-hmm. right? And and it's brilliant for this moment in politics. My view is 2020, whether it's – or 2019 municipal elections. Mm-hmm. It's all going to be about responding to this moment. This moment in our politics is different than any other moment that's existed. No matter how many times people create comparisons or analogies or contrasts yeah. with some other crisis, this is different. And we need people who may not be what we expect on paper – a leader to look like for a certain office, but who are in that moment, the antidote mm-hmm. to that creeping fear and hopelessness that I told you is what makes me sad. You know, it's amazing you said that because before you got here, Eric and I talked about outside of the, you know, the usual suspects, right? The folks that we would think from the Hillary Clintons and Bernie Sanders and Joe Bidens and Beto O'Rourke and Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. Like, who is that person that we're not talking about? And I'm not even just saying that for Steve Bullock, who we mentioned earlier, but I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, people need someone that can, you know, step up to the plate and, and, and have 
some sense of an awareness of the personal inner workings of all of us. You know, we're all different, but we're all the same. Right. We all want our families to be secure, safe and healthy. We all want neighborhoods that we can be proud of and safe in. We all want a country and a democracy that is uh, not hypocritical, that is equal, fair and just for all people. And with that being said, this idea of, of these candidates, what would your message be? What is that? What is that secret sauce that you think is what needs to be out there? Is that what you just mentioned or, no. you know, well, what, I mean, part of it, I suppose, but yeah. no, look, I, obviously I, I'm not running for president, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, as but much as I would were. like to, but, but, <laughs> I, yeah. but I can tell you, I wish I had the profile and the background to run now. Yeah. The reason is this moment, I know what the answer is. I love your boldness, by the way. Thank you. Seriously, because I mean, this is like really, you know, you you answering this and you approaching this, not being on a ballot, but saying it, not saying this person should, but if I were, mm-hmm. takes ownership. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for that. Thank you. Well, look, I, I think it's simple. Um, for Democrats, first of all, we need to be very careful how we talk about our primary candidates, especially the ones that we don't choose, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. These are all incredible, accomplished, worthy public servants. And they their heart is in the right place. They want to do the job. And darn it, it's hard to put your hat in the arena yeah. and to step in there and take the hits and stand for what you believe. Yeah. And not just run for office, but run for something. That's hard. And so this whole tearing other people down who aren't our choice, Democrats, stop it. Yeah, You need mm-hmm. to stop it right now advocate for the one you like, criticize the policies and the choices and the votes that you don't like of the other people and be passionate about it because that kind of civic engagement, regardless of outcome, betters our democracy and our country Mm -hmm. and your kid's future. Iron sharpens iron. It does. Mm -hmm. But we need to do it in a way that says any one of those candidates is better than what we got. Right, exactly. And, And we need to be cognizant of the fact that the entire country, and in fact, the world will be watching that primary and the way we talk to our allies, yeah. right? Because but we can't run it the way the Republicans did in 16. No. You cannot have the ad hominem, petty, personal attack nonsense right. that we see on display in our body politic every day. That's right. We need to be above it. Yeah. And so what I would say, if I ran for president, my message would be really simple. I wouldn't do anything that didn't have bipartisan support. I wouldn't sign a thing that didn't come out of that Senate without at least one vote from both parties. Yeah. And, and and the reality is, is That's you, a pretty bold statement. Well, you got to do it even when it's your side. Yeah. No budget reconciliation for major legislation. Mm-hmm. P.S. That's not how the Senate was designed <laughs> for those of us who actually studied it. <laughs> um, but it's more importantly, it's destructive. It normalizes the idea right. that we don't have to work with people who disagree with us. It gives us this ability to think we can sit in a room with our toys and not have to share them with anybody else. And I think that that, you know, for our listeners, what I'm what I'm hearing from you is this idea of bipartisan support. It's not about compromise, guys. It's it's understanding fundamentally that we live in a country and and the only way to move us in the right direction is uh, really to listen, to understand but to try and work together. I mean, one of the best books I've, I've read was Man of the House by Tip O'Neill. And whether you agree with Tip or you, you disagree with Reagan, 
the fact that they were willing to work mm-hmm. together and they were willing to make hard decisions and they were willing to be civil. I mean, mm-hmm. civility and statesmanship are missing from our body politic and we need to re- return to that. So I, I couldn't McCain, Feingold, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, even Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich back yeah, in the day. Yeah. Um, in fact, the reality is some of our most productive governments have been under divided governments, right? right. right? And, and I don't think that was because there's some magic formula about having a president from one party and a Congress from the other. Yeah. I think it's because it forced, forced the parties to the table. Mm-hmm. And so my message, not that any of them are probably going to ask, but <laughs> but if they did, what I would say to 2020 candidates is, we know all Democrats want people to have good, affordable right. health care. We know you all want to support public education. We know you get it on infrastructure, and Lord, we know that we are all fighting to preserve our democracy. But if that's all we talk about, we're not fixing what's broken. What's fundamentally not working in this country is not Donald Trump. It's not, you know, the Republican Party. It's not some amorphous opponent that disagrees with us. Mm-hmm. What's broken is that within, he, you know, Trump is a symptom. That's He's exactly not right. the root That's cause. Right. The root cause is we've forgotten how to sit down mm-hmm. with people who don't see the world through the same eyes that we do That's right. and mm-hmm. find a way to move forward together. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great answer. It's a great way um, to end. And, you know, Eric, I want you to share what you're optimistic about going into next year. And then we're going to close out our show, um, you know, in the next couple of minutes. But, Sarah, you know, thank you uh, yes. for here. Uh, we have not heard the laugh from Sarah Miko. Uh, we won't let this be the last we've heard from her because we're, we're going to bring on quarterly. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but I mean, I, you know, she's going to stay out there. But Eric, why don't, you, why don't you share what you're optimistic about and share how people can continue to support and follow Blue Talks. Okay. I was going to say one thing I'm not optimistic about are yeah. the tariffs. And as a business owner of 20 plus years, I just want to say this, and, and Sarah's alluded to this. For our business, our suppliers, they have absorbed the cost of the 10% tariffs so far this year and effective tomorrow, we're going to have to absorb those costs as a business. That's going to be passed along to the consumer. And then if this trade stuff goes nowhere, as we assume it won't, then we're talking about that 10% becomes 25%. So the pessimistic thing that I have to say is that consumers have generally had everything absorbed by the businesses or manufacturers up to this point. And my concern next year is that the consumer, whether or not you're buying a toy or an electronic or your vehicles, you're going to start to see real life significant increases in the prices of products. And that's an economic concern. As wages have stagnated right. and potentially as the economy slows down in the next 12 to 18 months. That is correct. Um, what am I positive about? Like 2019? Yeah, what, what are you positive about? Oh, my about? goodness. Um, well, I well can, you now know how to win the 2020 nomination. Apparently. So right. <laughs> like that, we just learned. I can say locally, politically, being involved where we are in Forsyth County, we're so excited about the growth that we're seeing. And just like you're seeing, excited people on the ground, candidates, people with great ideas. And I'm excited to see that off your election type things, usually people fall asleep. They're like, oh, my goodness, I'm fried. I can't do this anymore. I think we have people engaged and they're ready to make change. So I'm, Yeah, and just I'm remember, pressure makes diamonds, right? And mm-hmm. right now it seems like 
where the world is kind of collapsing in around us on certain sides and there's fears of now stagflation, which is like the right. worst of all possible worlds, right? It's you've Japan. got the trade war. You've got Mattis resigning mm. with one of the most stunning letters I've ever read in my life um, from a public official. Right. You've got high season of discontent and people really fearful about the future. But at the same time, you know, like Abraham Lincoln, right, back in his mm-hmm. era, those crucible sort of environments tend to produce these unexpected leaders right. who meet the needs of the moment. And that pressure makes diamonds. You can't have it without mm-hmm. it. Well, I want to um, I want to thank you, Eric, uh, for being my uh, radio partner this <laughs> year. Uh, it, it was it's been a fun ride and I'm looking forward to a, a full year with yes. you. Man. We've only had what, five or six months. And in those right. five or six months, we've interviewed three governors. We've interviewed an amazing lieutenant governor candidate and businesswoman in Sarah Miko. We've interviewed uh, our good friend Jason Carter. I mean, it's just been a fun ride. Not so bad. Huh? Not so bad yeah. for our first foray. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I want to leave you guys with a quote and what I'm optimistic about. A- Abraham Lincoln once said, um, in order to win a man to your cause, you must first reach his heart. Um, so my 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 challenge and and work and and call to action for everybody is let's be better at listening in 2019. Let's listen to understand and not to respond or debate. Let's try and figure out ways that we can find common ground. Uh, you know, I received several calls this year from Republicans in Forsyth County that I, I just wouldn't agree with, but that called and, and they literally said, Sarah, thank you. They said, thank you. You know, you've made us think, you know, and, and we may disagree. Like I said earlier on 99% of the issues, but the fact that folks are now starting to understand that if we're going to be neighbors, if we're going to be fellow citizens, we, we need each other. Civility, um, civility is critical. Um, what I am optimistic about going into next year is the future generation of voters and non-voters. Um, I've had my children on more than one occasion this year uh, ask me about politics and and they want to be engaged. I was invited to Sharon Springs, uh, Sharon Elementary in Forsyth County. Uh, These these uh, sixth graders were uh, reading about John Lewis and about voting rights. And I'm optimistic, as you said, while it seems like everything is collapsing around us. Young people are hungry and thirsty for knowledge. Not all of them are playing Fortnite. No, they (laughs) they do that too. They do that too. But I mean, you know, on on a serious note, I'm optimistic to see young people engaging from the March for Our Lives this year with Mm -hmm. the young people to seeing um, areas like Tacoma, Maryland, lower the voting age to 16, which is something I'm going to be working on in in the state of Georgia. I think we should consider in some cities lowering the voting age and letting our young people have a voice more amplified. So. I want to thank our listening audience. I would ask you to uh, continue to support us, um, continue to support great people like Sarah Miko, who's mm-hmm. staying out there on the front lines. And Eric, tell them how they can follow us and keep up with us going into 2019. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Blue Topsy. Let your friends, neighbors, people, the same political stripe, opposite political stripe, let everybody know about us because we want everybody engaged. We welcome Republicans to our program. That's right. And we're looking forward to having some of them next year. That's right. Happy New Year, everybody. Have a wonderful, safe, prosperous, and healthy New Year's Eve. And we look forward to an amazing 2019 with each and every one of you. Let's go forward together and uh, let's make this place a better place for everybody. All right. Thank you. Thank you.